Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors up and down the value chain are working to take climate action through food. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing the good that is happening, the challenges we share, and realizing a common vision for our future food system. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. Licorice. Do you love it or do you hate it? If you've been to the Nordics, odds are that you've probably tried sweet and or salty licorice. In today's episode, we dive into the story of Licorice by Bulo, which was started in 2007 by Johan Bulo. Johan started producing licorice in his mom's kitchen before opening his first shop on the Danish island of Bornholm. Fast forward to today, and they are an iconic brand sold across 35 countries and growing. This episode traces the evolution of the company, diving into valuable lessons around food entrepreneurship, branding, and sales. I also want to invite you to join the Nordic Food Tech Podcast newsletter on Substack. It's free to join and a great way to support the show. You can find the link to that and other resources we mention in this episode in the show notes or on www. Dot nordicfoodtech.io. Johan, you are the founder of Lacris by Bulo. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And I think we should start by talking about the fact that licorice is a very beloved Nordic confectionery, but it's also the kind of thing that people either love or hate, and it can be very controversial. So given this, what on earth made you go, I want to start a licorice company? Yeah. Um, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm from a family of entrepreneurs. Uh, actually my mother, um, told me since, you know, I was a, a, a very young boy to go out there and create something for myself something to be, to be proud of. So since I was, you know, a, a very young boy, I've been thinking about what to actually do with my life. And I found out that I needed to create something new and something, uh, something that was mine, a project that was mine. Um, and you know, when I was 21, I was standing in my, my uncle's, he had like, um, he had like a, a small niche production of rocks and I saw that and he showcased it to all the tourists, uh, coming into the store and people, you know, went crazy buying these rocks. And I saw that and I loved licorice, you know, and I thought, there might actually be a new category for gourmet licorice. If you just look at uh, the ingredients and you improve it and you, you know, work with the experience, et cetera, et cetera. So I got the idea when I was 21, but I think I thought about the idea since the age of, you know, eight or 10 or something like that. Cause my mother told me to really, you know, the, the perfect situation would be to work with something you love and do it every day. Yeah. That would be, that would be the perfect uh, position for me. It makes sense. And given that you were raised in this household where entrepreneurship was obvious and evident, were you kind of entrepreneurial as a kid or did that just happen later when you were like, I'm going to go for this idea? Or was that always kind of obvious for you? Yes, since I was a very young kid, I, you know, I was selling uh, apples and cherries down the road. And uh, at the age of, uh, of 14, I, I founded a small kiosk. I had my first company number. And I found it a, a small kiosk with, you know, pick and mix candy and ice cream and stuff like that. And 
And I did that in all in my holidays, my summer holidays between the eighth and the ninth grade. So uh, yeah, I, I learned a little bit about business uh, at the age of fourteen, and I I think it actually, uh, you know, I definitely learned from it. And and we can talk about that later on, but it might be my best advice to actually start in a very early age. So, at what age then did you start, Lacris Baibulo? I actually, I finished my, um, what do you call it, high school business degree, something like that. Um, and I finished that at the age of uh, 19. Then I worked in the restaurant business for a couple of years. And quite fast, I, I became a manager in a five-star design hotel. And while I did that, I started thinking about what, you know, intensifying uh, in thinking about what to do with my life. And then I got the idea. Um, I think working in that hotel told me that you know we are in an age now where people are prepared to pay more for high quality um with focus on packaging etc it's hard to to know but 15 years ago you know gourmet and expensive uh, jam and uh, you know chocolate etc it was something else 15 years ago um chocolate was you know um, the only industry that that really found the key to a higher price point and a higher quality um and I just saw this whole new universe in licorice. Why should all licorice products in the world be something industrial and something large scale? Um, I, I definitely saw the potential in in taking that to a to a new level. What was it happening at that point that you saw the market was ready for more, more luxury goods, more luxury foods, niche products? Mm. I was looking at the chocolate industry, obviously, uh, and I was looking at licorice as the beautiful thing about licorice is that it comes from a natural root. It, it, it is a plant and, you know, the root, if you chew the root, it has a taste of licorice. Uh, then you add flour, oil, um, different syrups, uh, etc., cetera, uh, salt, and then you create the confectionery product, licorice. So you have you had so many parameters in hiring the quality. Just by adding, you know, a, a better flour, we decided to cook from rice flour. We're the, I think we're still the only producer in the world cooking on rice flour. And the great thing about changing to rice flour from, uh, you know, corn or wheat flour was that my, my, uh, the rice flour has no taste and it's gluten-free. So, so just here, there, we were able to focus on the taste from the licorice root and we created a beautiful gluten-free product just by changing, you know, one uh, ingredient. Um, so no one ever looked into this before. They just bought huge amount of uh, molasses and licorice powder and flowers. And, you know, we were able to pick the best small producers there. And just to expand a little bit on that to understand how licorice is made, how else was large batch licorice kind of produced 15 years ago, if not today? The main ingredients uh, is uh, licorice root, typically uh, grown in the in the Middle East, in the south of Italy, uh, all the way to China. That's the main flavor. And then there is molasse that comes from cane sugar, uh, leftover production from cane sugar. Uh, then a flour uh, and some different types of glucose, uh, invert syrup, etc. Um, ideally, we were able to handpick those uh, to to create a, a higher quality. From the industrial perspective, they just bought, you know, huge contracts and they mixed it on huge machines and they cooked, you know, two, three, four tons an hour. Uh, we were in the market to cook 100 kilos an hour or something like that. And that was uh, more than enough uh, to begin with. So, uh, so yeah, the, the industrial scale um, was huge and it still is. Uh, 
so so yeah we were definitely a niche producer and we still are and yeah i mean when i think of licorice i grew up in the u.s so my relation to it was twizzlers or this stuff called red string but very much a red color and not salty it was very sweet yeah um and i wonder why what you do is so different right it's it's um maybe you can describe for people who have never tasted it before seen it what a Le Cris by Bulo product looks like or the kind of flavors they can expect. Mm. And then we'll take it from there. The, the cool thing about licorice is, you know, what, what is licorice to ask the question, you know, to me, licorice is licorice root called glucoritia glabra. It's a natural root and you can actually chew that. And then you have the taste of glycerin. So called that's the, the taste of licorice. Uh, so to me, that's licorice. Then you have licorice as a, a confectionery product, a black licorice product with flour, with oil, with syrup, sugar, mm -hmm. etc. Uh, then, you know, the biggest industry in the world for licorice is red licorice, like you're talking about, twistless, etc. But that contains no licorice root. Now you're starting to be confused, you know, but, but red licorice is a $1.2 billion industry. Um, so they call it licorice, even though there's no licorice in it. There might be, you know, uh, uh, just uh, a teaspoon of licorice in there, but it has no taste at all. It's, it's, it has a taste of, you know, berries and stuff like that. Um, at the end of the day, we, we've been creating different niche products. So our best-selling uh, products today are chocolate-coated licorice. You know, 90% of our sales comes from chocolate-coated licorice. So it is the center of black licorice, and then we coat it with the, the best possible chocolate. We add the best possible fruit powders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, our best sold SKU is our Christmas calendar, you know, 24 yes. days of different licorice experiences. So so just by talking to you for two minutes now, I you know we did a, 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 what should we call it, a niche of gourmet black licorice. There's a niche of chocolate-coated licorice. There's a niche of uh, you know red licorice. Um, into a calendar product, uh, which is our best sold SKU. Uh, if you if you say licorice to a guy from Poland, he would say licorice. Oh, that's a plant, you know, some kind of plant. So it's a little confusing to me. Licorice is a natural root uh, that has the pure taste of licorice. So and we can do that, and we can make that in in every direction. We can add it into uh, liquor, etc. And I mentioned I grew up in the U.S., but when I would go to Denmark in the summers, we would often you know, go to the grocery store, go to the little kiosk and buy these containers that were in cardboard with very salty, very hard licorice that felt like it was going to break your teeth. And it was yeah. everywhere. And everyone was always offering them after dinner, or like as a little thing. And I was like, what is this product? Like, and it, I mean, that's what I think of as mainly being in the market. Was there chocolate covered anything? Was it sweet or was it primarily salty when you started? We did black licorice to begin with one sweet and one salty. Um, and there was definitely a market for black licorice, but pr primarily in the Nordic countries, meaning Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Finland. And, and you can, if you look at Germany, which is our biggest export market today, 85 million people, um, you know, the north of Germany can actually eat, uh, you know, black licorice. But the south of Germany, it's a little more difficult. So you, you can really see on a huge market, people are not aligned in any way when it comes to, to eating black licorice. Then again, now the track record for us in the south of Italy, in Munich, et cetera, is actually super good at this point. So, um, so yeah, but it's, it's primarily, again, from the chocolate-coated licorice products. So black licorice is in, in the Nordic countries, and the chocolate-coated products is for everyone. So, yeah, at this point, we make the world love chocolate-coated licorice right now. 
and uh, we're trying to you know every day improve the black licorice for for the world to fall in love with that as well and where did that idea first come from to coat it in chocolate actually chocolate coated licorice they've been doing that for generations in iceland but i think the quality of those products was not you know prepared to do export it was a and maybe an iconic taste to the icelandic people uh, and i think what we did was to actually focus on doing the perfect soft uh, extruded sweet licorice and then we coated it with best possible chocolate and what really happened to be super honest we've been living uh, of doing sampling to look in people's faces saying do you like it or do you, do you not like it and the day we actually made the first chocolate coated licorice products we asked you know people from germany from the south of germany about do you like licorice and they said no and then we gave them a sample and they they tried it and uh, they were like i like this what is it it's licorice you know and that 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 kind of sums it all up you know that was that that happened one summer and i was trying to produce chocolate coated licorice in the middle of the night because we had no air condition so I had to do it outside because the temperatures was was uh, you know was okay for chocolate coating, uh, and we served it the day after, and then we work you know we worked a hundred hours a week uh, mm. to serve the world with chocolate coated licorice. But, but yeah. So from the point that you first got this idea, and then what happened next? Did you go home and start cooking? Did you find someone to cook with? But like, how did you get this off the ground once you had that first idea? Um, you know, I went to my mother's kitchen, uh, found a two kilo pot and a wooden, you know, spoon. And then I started, uh, I just tried to, you know, I bought a, a box of licorice and I, and I, I turned it around and I saw the ingredients list there and I tried to cook something, uh, and I went, you know, I Googled it and there was absolutely nothing to find. Um, so I was in my mother's kitchen for the first three months. And it was awesome, you know, it was, uh, no, it was not awesome. It was awful, uh, you know, nothing, nothing really happened. And uh, it was way too sticky and moldy and um, yeah, it was just a disaster, you know. So three months later, we needed to find some kind of uh, industrial expert to, to, to help us in, in developing it. You're just the first recipe there. Then I got in contact both with a guy in, uh, in Australia and a guy in Denmark, uh, actually a guy still working in the in the business 14 years later. And together with him, we actually invented the first licorice back in 2007. It took, you know, in total, I think we were working on it for 14, 15 months, something like that. And, um, and in the end, when he joined uh, the lab or the kitchen, um, it took us around three or four months, and then we were prepared to to sell and, and serve it to the tourists on, on Bonhart. How was the process of finding the right people? Because we talked about that you had a little bit of experience in the food industry, but you weren't a chef. So how did you even go about figuring out who to collaborate with and who to work with to get that recipe? I don't know, to be honest. You know, I <laughs> I went in every direction and I Googled everything and I called we called the big industry. I've been in contact with uh, Haribo, you know, one of the major licorice wine gum producers in the European countries. And I just called them and I'm as I asked for the production manager and I asked him about a recipe and he was laughing at me. Um, you know, we just tried and tried and tried and tried for, for 15 months. You know, in the end, something magical happened. And it was not just a, a copy of something else. 
it was obviously our product and our recipe, our texture and our taste. And, you know, mm -hmm. that created the new market to me. Yeah. And who was the we back then in the early days? Was it just you or who was supporting you in this? Actually, I founded this together with my girlfriend, Sarah, uh, 15 years ago. And she's my wife today. We have three kids. Uh, so she was uh, helping me uh, in the small licorice kiosk uh, on my home island the first summer. Um, then we moved to Copenhagen and I started a small factory. Uh, and she studied uh, uh, in the design school later on. But she actually helped me to found the business. And she, then she went in, other, in another direction. So, so mm -hmm. that was we. It's, it's been, I think we are a great team. In business and in life, it sounds like, which is amazing. And you've been on the whole journey together. Yeah. Um, so I know in the beginning you were doing this hand production, cooking in mom's kitchen. Then you brought in some help. But then, as you said, you had to actually set up production. So what did it look like to take it from the kitchen to something with machines? That's a good question. You know, um, I found out quite early when when... When we opened the store the first day in 2007, we had we had a store full of uh, you know small bags. It was bags uh, back then, and in only two hours we sold the entire store. So we opened the store and said, "Welcome to the small licorice kiosk. We're doing you know handcrafted licorice products," and we were just sold out. People screamed for for more products, uh, and that happened for you know three months in a row or something like that tourists were you know standing in line before we even opened the store every morning we did no marketing at all uh, nothing uh, ideally we just created an experience and actually at that time a taste so we started the cooking pot and then we added uh, aniseed to the pot so it has like it had like a strong smell of licorice in the streets and then people just came to the store um uh, I wrote some books about dream society back then and creating ambassadors around experiences. So I think the marketing tool number one was to actually create a taste around mm -hmm. the store and then to to hand out uh, an amazing sample. Um, and actually, we're still doing that the day to day. I mean, the term I think of, you, you mentioned experience a bunch of times, and I know the experience economy is a huge thing that a lot of people are inspired by. I'm not sure if that's what you were looking into or you just stumbled upon it, but how did you understand how important experiences are to food and how transformational they can be. I think the experience is extremely honest. And I think what created the success is, is the honest story. You know, I've told the honest story over and over again. I've been, you know, I started looking into people's eyes and I expected an honest answer. Do you like the product or, or do you not like the product? And you know, today we're doing that in the Middle East. We're doing that in, uh, London, et cetera, et cetera, in Germany. Um, and, you know, the vision is to make the world love licorice. And at the end of the day, it's all about the product there, the product and the feeling and, the, you know, the whole sensory experience. Do they like it or, or don't they like it? So, um, mm -hmm. I know. And especially when you first start a company, that moment is so vulnerable because you don't yet know if you have product market fit. So when you offer to someone that's not your family, you're like, what do you like exactly. it? You know, the authenticity and the vulnerability of it's my baby. Like, what do you, what do you think? The truth. You need the <laughs> <Exactly>. truth, <laughs> you know, no, that's, that's spot on. You know, it's, it's, it's the truth. And, um, and it hurts, you know, when you've been doing something for 15 months and someone just spits it out saying, what on earth are you doing? Um, I, I, I couldn't sleep for two days, you know, 
on the other hand, you know, when someone came into the store, they bought one licorice stick and they just enjoyed it and they bought another 10, you know, I could work a hundred hours for the next three months, you know, that's the life of an entrepreneur, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's what I think is the most beautiful thing there. So, um, yeah. And especially, you know, as we talked about earlier, there's, it's a new flavor for a lot of people. So it also takes some of the risk out when you get to taste something before you buy it. And I've seen that in a lot of different food concepts, um, but it opens up for a conversation. You know, if you don't like this, you mm-hmm. can try another one and we'll figure out which one is right for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want to mention that similarly, I did a podcast with Coffee Collective and they were saying that a lot of people don't understand how complex coffee is. There's a lot of flavors. It's not just one flavor. So if you don't like this one, don't say you don't like coffee. Let's keep trying because we can find the right match for you. Yeah. yeah. But what I actually realized in the middle of the process was that, you know, um, if you, if someone thinks that they don't like licorice and you can convince them through a sample, uh, they would go tell all their friends, you know. So sampling was a super powerful tool. When you, when I asked you, do you like just regular Danish people? Do you like licorice uh, uh, coated with chocolate? They were like, that's two different things, you know. Where you can't do that. Then they tried it and they and they loved it. Then they bought it as a gift, you know, to tell a story about this chocolate and licorice is actually really really good. And that that was kind of a snowball effect in in marketing as well. So the whole plan was not to go out there and buy, you know, advertisement, et cetera. It was to do sampling in the right segment everywhere, you know, to create smiles. Um, and and we're still doing that. Mm-hmm. And I know that story you can tell too of, I went here and had this experience. I tried this thing, or I met this young man who is, you'll never believe what he was doing. Like you can exactly. just imagine uh, how it makes someone look good. It makes them look good to, in front of their friends and that they know something and exactly. they can share that. You know, the cool thing about it is the story is true. You know, it's honest. I, it's I, authentic. I, I just told the story and people are saying that I'm a marketing master. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm just telling the honest story and I'm still doing that. So, so that's great. And what made Born Home a really good place to incubate this? I'd love to also explain Born Home for listeners that have never been to Denmark, never been there. Um, like what, what is Born Home? Mm. You know, Denmark has been very well known for gourmet and especially restaurants. So we have, I think we are the country in the world with the most Michelin stars. Um, uh, yeah, in the, in the entire world, uh, if you look at how many people actually living here. We have Noma, the best restaurant in the world, et cetera, et cetera. Bonholm is a beautiful, small gourmet island in the Oyster Sea. 40,000 people living there. And, you know, there are a lot of niche producers in, you know, doing their own oils, their own honey, their own jam, etc., etc., etc. So it's a perfect place for a pilot, you know, a summer pilot. The tourists are coming. Nothing happens during the winter, but you have three or four months during the summer where you can actually test something like this. And my father had just a 10 square meter location uh, in the middle of, you know, the the tourist road. Uh, so it, it was kind of a pilot, you know, it was a small kitchen and just a counter, me and Sarah, let's go, let's see what happens. We cooked eight kilos and we hand rolled it and, and people were just enjoying it, you know? So, but I think to develop your own product and to look into people's eyes, it's the strongest part of being, you know, of, of creating a success like this, because you know, your product all the way in, you know, down to the, how do you cook it? Uh, how does it look when it's almost, uh, 
finished in the in the small pot. Uh, you know, how does people react from this country to this flavor, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, it was it was it might have been the the greatest learning of all. I would say to just be there in front of the consumers and to see how see all the reactions and be so close to production and. So I, I want to bring it then to the fact that I've heard of this machine. It's like a legendary machine that you've had for a very long time. And I feel mm. like it owes a place in the, <laughs> the story's history of how you ended up, again, kind of growing it to be able to produce more than what you and Sarah and the four hands you had could produce. Yeah. So what did it look like to try and figure out, like, what machine do I need to do this? Yeah, <laughs> how do I get that to born home? Super, super, super <laughs> difficult, you know. No, so we were sold out for three months in a row, and I was uh, super tired. I think I lost ten kilos or something like that. We, we worked for a hundred hours a week. Uh, then the season was over, and we shut down the store. Uh, we closed the store, and uh, we were supposed to go on a vacation. But you know, two days later, I was like, "We need to do something, and we need to do it now." Because I, I mm -hmm. had, I, I received, you know. 50 business cards from potential, uh, you know, distributors, customers, uh, corporate customers, etc. during the summer. So there were so many potential customers out there. I talked to a lot of people that first summer and I heard that, you know, there are a couple of licorice machine producers around the world. And one of them is in the UK, close to Manchester. Um, and I got a contact from a, uh, a Danish agent. Uh, and I think... <laughs> Back then, I wrote them an email saying, you know, I wrote them from an email called, you know, johanbulo28 at hotmail.com. And I wrote something like, hello, my name is <laughs> Johan. I would like to buy a licorice machine. Do you have one? <laughs> and I just sent the email. That's, you know, 22-year-old uh, entrepreneur. Uh, and he responded, the CEO of the, uh, of the business responded to me and invited me to Manchester. And I remember that I, I traveled there with absolutely no idea what to expect. And the first thing I saw there was a machine for Nestle producing three and a half tons an hour. And it was 100 meters long. You know, to, so to go to Manchester and, and, you know, and convince a guy that normally makes uh, machines uh, cooking three and a half tons an hour to do 100 kilos an hour was uh, kind of difficult at that time so um but at the end of the day you know i convinced him to do it also as uh, in a low cost uh and yeah that's that's being an entrepreneur to be able to succeed when <laughs> something like that uh, needs to be done what was your argument like how did you convince him first of all i tried to convince him by saying that there must be a, a huge niche market for licorice machines it was like we've been doing this for 120 years and you've never seen that market before so <laughs> Um, the next <laughs> argument was that he told me that uh, there was a trade show in Cologne seven months later, um, you know, a, a huge uh, machinery, uh, process machinery show uh, for confectionery, uh, confectionery machinery. And I actually convinced him to, what if we together created the world's smallest licorice machine? Then you, can sh you could showcase that to the press on that trade show in Cologne. And then, you know, I'm, I, I could pay you 150,000 uh, pounds and I'll pick it up, you know, at the end of the trade show, you'll never see the machine again. And I actually convinced them to do that. So, um, so they built a machine and they showcased it in Cologne and I picked it up for Copenhagen later on. So, um, and we moved from Bonholm 
uh, to Copenhagen where I, I had an apartment and my everyday life. So, yeah. I mean, it's just such a good story. It is a good story. Yeah. <laughs> I, and it just goes to show that, I mean, it's one thing I really admire in your story and researching to get ready of this is how much grit and hustle you've had the whole way through. Like, you know, you worked a hundred hour weeks. You were in the trenches for a very long time. You put everything on the line because you believed in this and even having the balls, like, yeah. you know. But I think that's one of the, it's one of the cool things being 22, you know, you don't have a family, you don't have, you have Sarah and I was with her, you know, uh, two hours every evening and she was, she was in on it as well, you know. Um, but But you don't really realize that if you go to the bank and you, borrow uh, you know 500,000 euros or something like that it's just you know it's just money you don't have kids you don't have a house you don't have you know all those responsibles um, responsibilities so, uh, yeah. Uh, responsibilities yeah so it was actually to me it was a good thing being 22 years old because I I just did it you know let's go um, mm -hmm. and it's fun and some of the other food entrepreneurs I've interviewed they had a similar journeys of the first place you look is Google or a book or like YouTube to just try and copy. But very rarely is that information online. So the amount of trial and error and just trying to like hunt down leads is incredible. Like, you know, it's so many recipes you have to try before you even yeah, yeah. get the right thing. I actually bought some old books, 50, 60 year old books from a guy called E.B. Jackson, who was supposed to be a confectionery guru and, and, you know, he he wrote books about how to cook licorice and i i found those books and paid a lot of money for them but you know that was that was big volumes that was uh five tons an hour that was you know no one we didn't find anything uh small scale no niche at all so, um, so yeah. yeah but we tried so it was on born home then you expanded to copenhagen how long did it take before the business started to grow? Those are two questions. One from when it really started to grow and you're like, we have product market fit and traction to then when you became profitable and you were like, okay, this is, mm. this is happening. I think it took two or three years. Uh, actually, already the first summer, you know, we cooked three pots of eight kilos was 24 kilos a day, me and Sarah. Uh, and we were actually we 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 did a turnover of one million Danish kroners, um, which is one hundred and fifty thousand euros in three months. Two people. I was hand rolling everything, and she was selling it. You know, so it was actually kind of profitable the first summer in the in the pilot test. Then moving to Copenhagen, we had a couple of years with uh, higher costs, of course, um, but already year three or four, we started to become profitable. Um, to begin with, we opened a wholesale business, um, not supermarket chains, uh, only fine food, small coffee stores, like the Coffee Collective you talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that's still the philosophy not to go into these huge supermarket chains. We do fine food, high quality, also in a high price. Um, and we work together with not customers, maybe more ambassadors of, of the brand and the products. So, um, so, yeah, but three or four years into, uh, into the process, it started to become profitable. And did you find that the big incumbents were taking note? I know they hadn't really played in this space before, but then here you come as the disruptor. So like anything there? I think they saw it quite early, uh, the big Danish producers. Uh, and I've heard later on that they, they did workshops in 
what could we actually do if we bought like Chris Bybulo in a very young age, age? What could we actually do with the brand? So I think they saw that we created a new category, you know, in a higher quality and in a higher price point. And we actually, you know, sold more products uh, direct to consumers instead of doing it in a distribution uh, uh, channel. So, um, so yeah, yeah, I think they looked at us from the very beginning saying, this guy's onto something. Um, mm-hmm. But it was also just a very, very small business to begin with. So, um, so yeah. To give us a sense, what is the size or the footprint now? Like, what, what's the state of the company today? Mm. Uh, the company revenue is around 40 million euros today, 300 million Danish kroners. Um, we are a very high positioned, high quality uh, brand, no supermarket, no huge customers. So we are in around 2,000 small independent fine food coffee stores, flower stores, etc. around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we have 28 own stores in Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Germany, and two in Dubai. We are opening later this month in Stockholm, a flagship store, and we are opening in London, the first store in London in June. Uh, on borrow yards um we are dealing uh, business to business with some of the biggest you know brands around the world we do corporate gifting for you know everything from mercedes to emirates airlines today one of the big cost biggest customers is emirates airlines and we we supply first class flights with small jars of licorice so that's our segment and that's what we do um and i think to me it's it that's the most important thing to do to quality we produce in denmark i can go to the production i'm actually sitting in the production area now in my office so i could go to the production now and and to actually taste what they've been doing all day and i think that's extremely powerful um at the end of the day you know we create experiences and we create a great product and if people are prepared to to pay nine or ten us dollars for a small jar of licorice that we need that to be a very very good experience both when they buy it you know in a great packaging uh, but especially when they start tasting it uh, that's extremely important so so i am the you know the gatekeeper to quality and brand channel design uh, everything around that um and you know that's a dream position for me here so amazing most companies of your size would not necessarily have chosen to keep production in denmark so why do that Mm. actually i just i just said why you know we're able to you know look into the the employees eyes when they when they come to work on monday morning we're here to create something amazing not to create volumes etc obviously the business is much bigger than it was 14 years ago and i think um during the last 14 years we've just been hiring the quality year after year after year We've been better in producing and sourcing uh, best possible ingredients. Um, we've also been better in doing, you know, migration tests, etc. We now have a quality department of, of three or four people sitting there to make sure everything is, is aligned. Uh, so I think we're actually in a better place when it comes to quality than we were 14 years ago. Um, and we expanded a lot, obviously. So. Um, mm-hmm. um, and how much do you produce every year now? What's the capacity? Around four million jars. Wow! So all okay, produced in lot. Copenhagen, and we are going to to produce in in Copenhagen for the next many years. I'm I'm sure. Amazing, and I do think it's important to note that uh, you put a lot of uh, emphasis on sourcing 
And even I think sustainability from that point of view of finding the best ingredients and where people had not thought, you know, where do I buy the best possible licorice root? Who's the right farmer for that or the right, you know, producer for that? So how is that process of finding the right people to partner with to source, to create the best possible quality product? I think we've we've done it in many different directions. Now you talked about Coffee Collective earlier. I'm actually drinking, you know, Coffee Collective here. Yeah, you there you it. go. <laughs> um, and I think the world should should look more into what they are actually doing in Kieni, if you've heard that story. Mm-hmm. I think that's beautiful to actually go down there and to... We have a podcast on it, plugging it right now. There's a podcast that covers that. <laughs> oh, nice. um, but you know, the story of Kieni, we should be able to do more of that, if you ask me. We should be able to do more local sourcing. Uh, that's important. About sustainability, we're you know running on 100% green energy. Uh, all our plastic are made both recycled and recyclable. Um, so we are doing tons of different things when it comes to sustainability. And actually, uh, hopefully in June, July this year, we're launching a whole new, uh, you know, improved sustainable concept. Um, and I, I can't talk more about that right now, but it's going to be uh, totally next level to what you we're have doing a today. little smile on your face, so I can tell it's going to be exciting. We'll have to come back <laughs> and find out. Definitely. Yeah, and then the other thing that's interesting you've done is exploring local tastes or looking at, you know, of course it started in the Nordics with more Nordic flavors maybe, but it looks like you're also tailoring to new markets as you expand globally and go see, see what else there can be. I don't know if that's been just for fun or part of the idea, but how do you see it expanding in terms of the tastes and making it meet local markets? I think to be honest now, this is uh, now you're in, in the U S I think maybe the biggest potential for for La Cris by Bulo at this point, if we're able to do it right, to create the, the uh, an amazing product for it, I think red licorice could be, you know, uh, the the unicorn fairy tale for us. I think, to be honest, imagine to do something gourmet, something with you know real organic fruit, etc., for Whole Foods. I think that's a huge opportunity to us. Um, I don't think we have the size, the organization, to really do it at this point. But in the near future, I think that's an, a major opportunity for us. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the brand and everything fits the, especially the the bigger cities, uh, the consumers there. Uh, so we will definitely be working on that. Yeah. And why expand to a market like Dubai before the US? Um, honestly, uh, we had a very, very uh, good connection there. And ideally, we started with Scandinavia. Then we went into Germany. So Scandinavia was our, let's call it home base. Germany was a big market. If we can make it there with 85 million people, that would be super amazing. The German consumers are very, very loyal. So um, if we were able to to gain some, uh, gain a great experience there, that would be very strong for the brand. But we needed something away from home all the way, you know, far away from everything with lots of different nationalities to try the products. And I think you you cannot find a place in the world uh, with more nationalities than in Dubai. You know, so every day in the big store in Dubai Mall, we have 30, 40, 50 different nationalities that actually tries our products and they buy it. Um, and today, the Dubai store, the Dubai Mall store, is the best performing of all 28 stores in the world. And you know, before pre-COVID, uh, 30 to 35 percent of all revenue in the store came from Chinese people. So. It it you know, we 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 during the years we had tons of learnings from Dubai because so many people tried our products, 
Um, it's a really that, good point. Of, if you want to go global, how do you find a place where you can yeah. get exposure, global exposure, without literally having to set up and invest in many, many stores around the world? That was the idea. And to begin with, I think we believed in the business case, obviously. But then again, it was more of a learning to go out there and actually look in into all these different in the eyes of all these nationalities and see what happens out here you know uh, and you know to we have five chinese girls working in the store and they are just super cool super nice you know every day trying to convince uh, people from around the world that licorice is the new black you know in many ways so do employees go to like tasting school or licorice school so to speak where they have to learn about licorice and uh, get close to the production in that way yeah, we have intros uh, for all new employees. They go to the factory and they go together with uh, some of the old uh, cooking guys there to know exactly what's going on and, and what we, what kind of ingredients we use, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's important. And before, I know in Denmark, there's something crazy, like you have 73% brand recognition. And like at this point, most people know what you're doing and what it's about. Um, but you did mention before that now you own everything related to the brand. So I'd love to put a couple words on that because developing a luxury brand is really hard. And most of the time it costs a lot of money. And as you said, it's mm -hmm. through your honesty and authenticity that you were able to do that in the early days. But what does that journey look like? How has the evolution of that been? Mm. The evolution of the brand. Yeah, that's my responsibility in, in, in the business at this point. I think um, what actually happened years ago was that we were kind of a challenger to the to the big industry and then during the years we became in the danish market uh, an icon with a high uh, with, with high awareness and if we look at norway today we are we're close to 50 percent awareness now so we've been on the same journey starting to be an iconic brand uh, it's the same deal in finland uh, we're a little behind in sweden uh, Germany is now at at seven percent, so we definitely need to do more uh, down there. But then again, you know, seven seven percent out of eighty five million people, uh, so actually more people in the German market knows our brand than in Denmark now. You know, so but but it's a journey of being a challenger into becoming an icon. So designing is the design of the packaging and the jar is extremely important there. And we, we've been looking extremely close to close. We, we've really been working a lot on that design uh, for many, many years to make sure that we are that brand. We are the iconic brand when it comes to gourmet licorice, when it comes to chocolate coated licorice, because we obviously saw more than 100 copies for the last 10 years. You know, So mm. the whole experience in the packaging and the brand is extremely important. Of course it is. And it really helps us to build a brand in new markets. How do you develop that meaning we talked about with taste you can see it in their eyes when you put it in the mouth if you're standing right in front of them you can kind of a b test it in that moment to figure out what they like but how do you do it when it comes to the experience when you're not in front of them or even just with the packaging the label like things that are a little bit more that's also that's that's difficult obviously it's difficult and you need to have a great gut feeling etc i think what we've been doing for the last 10 years is that we believe in we need to improve 0.5% you know, every single week. So uh, just to bring an example, a month ago, we were working on removing five grams of plastic in the jar. So we spent you know, a year in doing tests on e-com sales and frights. It's a crash test, et cetera. 
Uh, and now we're able to launch a jar with five grams less plastic. It has a lower cost and it's 25 tons of plastic every year we just removed. So that's just a small thing in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of projects trying to improve yourself every single day. And, and I think that is, you know, a way of reacting to sustainability to really do something there and try to improve every single day. Mm-hmm. And I'm in charge of those projects and I, I love running them. So you get to do all the fun, new, hard things that no one's done before. <laughs> I'm also the one that everybody has an opinion about. <laughs> Believe me, that's that's tough. I know you are. I mean, your name's on it, right? So that definitely makes yeah. a difference. Um, and I'm just curious, when you say iconic, what does that mean to you? To me, you know, uh, living in Copenhagen, we are very well known for architecture, design, uh, Anna Jakobsen, et cetera, furnitures. Um and Bang & Olufsen, Audio, etc. I think we could actually be that brand, the design brand in, a con- in, in an old, you know, dusty confectionery industry. Uh, and that's, uh, that's iconic to me. If, if, if that was possible to be that, you know, I love when people buy our products and they look at it saying, wow, this is just super, super nice, super delicious. Um, it should be the, the perfect feeling there. Um, that's very important. Mm. Then again, you know, iconic um, Heinz tomato ketchup and Nutella, et cetera, are also iconic products. You know, I think we see ourselves uh, maybe also as a design product. We have lots of customers in the design industry. Um, we're working together with, you know, doing collaborations with companies around the world uh, in the design industry. So yeah. does it make sense that that's it iconic does. to me? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's, it's so interesting to hear. So in doing this, do you, do you sell direct to consumer? Is it only through uh, retail and through these kind of corporate relationships? Oh, you know, uh, more than more than 50% now is direct to consumer sales. And our online platform is booming uh, and has been booming for the last. And that's global sales, even though you don't have stores in every market? That's global sales. Okay. So people all around the world can buy what you're doing now or what markets are. Yeah. We're selling in a hundred countries online direct to consumers. So that's, that's a game changer to us. Are there any good learnings there you can pass on when it comes to going from the retail to the online? Some companies start the other way around where they start online and then they go to retail, but. I actually, for the last two years, we've designed a launch journey for our products and we've been focusing a lot on e-commerce and community, obviously. Uh, our community is called Lacris Lovers, uh, which is, you know, signups um, uh, to our community uh, uh, formula. So what we do now is we go to the laboratory and we invent a new flavor. Then we give it a name and then we launch it online and in own retail. Then we sell, you know, 20, 25,000 jars in 14 days for, to all around the world. And then they have a scan code on the jar and then they actually go through a survey and they bring feedback to the factory. So we are using the La Chris Lovers community to actually develop the perfect product for each market. And that's extremely clever because the community is, is, uh, is growing everywhere in the world. And it really, you know, it helps us to nail the right flavor every single time. And, um, you know, the opportunity to do that even more for the coming years, mm-hmm. I would say that the most important KPI for the business as this, at this point is, you know, to convert like his lovers, to co- convert community because we have a super, super strong recurring uh, customer rate on those signups. Is that the main parameter for becoming a community member? Do you have to sign up to be part of the 
beta testing, so to speak? Or, or is it just that I can see you've ordered it three times, so you're a recurring member? No, you 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 sign up and then you get some you know free samples on each order, uh, etc. So, uh, but yeah, I think what they're asking for is that you know they love the brand and they love the product and they are prepared to actually uh, you know bring their opinions to us on new flavors and new tastes. And I think that's super super strong to a brand, you know. Absolutely, it's a lot of data to look through too, <laughs> to read. Yeah, but it's you know. It's so nice to, to, what we do now is we do these, uh, like this lover limited products online. And, you know, if the, uh, if the data coming back is very positive, then we move it into a season, then we could launch the flavor in a Valentine season or a summer season or a winter season. And if it's an even bigger success, they, then we can pass it on to the classic assortment, you know? So when we launch it in the classic assortment, we are hundred percent sure that this is a, a success, you know? And I think wow. uh, I haven't heard of any other, you know, um, confectionery producers doing it like that. And I think it's really, really strong because it it helps us to engage with with everybody at the same time. Um, yeah. yeah, you you create the flywheel, but at the same time, it's as we were talking about before the word of mouth. Like, how proud do you feel as a consumer if you got to give feedback and then you actually see that product in the market later, and you're like, exactly. wow. And we're actually launching a product this summer, a lemon product, and that product comes from a campaign 14 months ago. Uh, a Norwegian girl who actually asked us to create this, and she won uh, you know, a competition on our website. And now we're actually launching it in you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jars. I so think cool. that's a super amazing story. So the community actually built you know, the love for licorice. Uh, and in a perfect world, you know, the Scandinavian countries that love black licorice they, you know, they buy us as a gift and they give it to friends in the U.S., et cetera. Mm -hmm. so this is a very special gift from the Nordic countries in high quality. So. Well, I can't tell you how many times I've stood in the airport. <laughs> For people that don't know, they have um, some very good placements of stores where you can get some taste while you're waiting at the airport. And very often it is a great gift to bring with you on your way or right when you arrive, if you need a taste besides eating a hot dog, like... <laughs> can pop by and get a sample um is are you only in the copenhagen airport or are you in many other airports now too oh we are in other airports as well yeah okay. uh, we have two stores in the copenhagen airports now very well performing stores handing out uh, tons of samples every month to to yeah nationalities from around the world but you know the the airports and the travel retail business is obviously super important to us trying to make the world love licorice because you got so many people there and everybody's open-minded there you know going on a vacation they're open-minded to everything so it's 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 easy to work there when did you first get the idea to set up shop in an airport what is it eight nine years ago maybe i, I was actually walking i was going a tour with the the retail director in copenhagen airport and he was trying to, you know, put us in a 50, 60 square meter uh, position. And I was like, mm, I think we should do this as kind of a pilot. And I was just pointing at a wall. It was only six square meters. And I was like, what if we just, what if the brand was just right here against this wall? We were able to do some sampling and let's, let's see what happens. Can you do a good deal on that one? And he was like, yeah, let's see what I can do. And then we ended up, you know, doing that very very small store in six square meters and i think you know 10 10 years later those are the best performing square meters in the entire you know airport today it has a revenue of more than 10 million danish kroners in just a very small area 
you just have the products and you can do a lot of sampling and the gift boxes, etc. So uh, the cool thing about licorice or our brand is that you can actually do it uh, on small places. Mm-hmm. And I love the vision of, as you've said multiple times, we're here to make the world love licorice. I saw a recent marketing campaign you did where you could share it with a hater or something mm-hmm. like that. And I thought it was so funny and so well done. And while it's still a, such a high quality product, there is something really fun about it and it's playful and it, um, you know. Yeah. You know, the cool thing about exactly that is that is super true. You know, it's very, very honest. And, and it's the guys from the production that came in and we made this video. Um, and, you know, and those videos, those videos from around the world, that that's what we see every single day. You know, so one guy in the Emirates is spitting out the licorice saying, oh, my God. And, you know, another guy loves it, you know. So, yeah, yeah, it's 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 just honest. Yeah. It and is it's awesome. a nice campaign. Well, now I'd love to ask you the questions that everybody gets asked that comes on the show. And mm-hmm. the first one is, what is your vision for the future of food in 10 to 15 years? 100% less food waste. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, you know, the biggest impact on sustainability when it comes to the food industry at this point. And I think in Denmark, we're throwing out, you know, 35% of all food, something like that. And I think that's ridiculous. So um, I think you should focus on higher quality, local sourcing, obviously all those things, but less food waste is extremely important. An so, obvious yeah. one. How are yeah. you thinking about food waste? How is the crisp by Bulo? Uh, we're doing everything we can in the factory to sort everything uh, and to reuse, etc. Uh, but actually, in my private home, we do it as well. We try to teach our kids that you know we eat up every every single day, um, and I think that is extremely important to the world uh, in general to to do that. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, are you looking at upcycling? Meaning, if there is waste, you collaborate with other companies to create new products or new value streams beyond mm-hmm. recycling. Yeah, we have been looking at it. Nothing official yet, but we have been looking at it. Yeah. Cool. So reducing food waste, what are we missing to get there? Make that happen. You know, what I like about uh, being somewhere in the world where they don't have the ingredients just next to them, just local, then they bring, um, I don't know how to say it, you know, uh, a thing like nuts. Instead of buying a big bag of nuts, I think you should highlight that as a fine food. You know what I mean? So every time you buy a notch, you should put it in a very nice ball and you should put it in front of people and then you should, you know, really enjoy it as something amazing. And I think it's a culture of eating, you know, organic and eating better, but, but uh, you know, yeah, try to place it as a gourmet experience instead of just being a nut or an apple or something like that. I've worked a lot on that with my family and I think it makes sense, you know, to, yeah. Does it I make think sense so. Here? Are there any good tips for doing that with children? <laughs> that the many parents might find uh, useful it's a little more difficult i think it's a little more difficult i don't have the answer to that no, i'm sorry okay but i hear you that it's a lot about one the experience but it's also about slowing down and knowing where your food comes from and the story behind it and understanding the many hours of work that went into producing anything that's true for anything at the end of the day appreciate quality you know really and As I told you earlier, we have listeners from all around the world. So the next question is, what collaborations are you looking for, if anything? It's an open mic. Let's do do the world's best red licorice with Whole Foods then. 
that could be a nice collaboration. All right. So it's been out there. If you think you can help with this, what's the best way for someone to get in touch with you to, to explore that? You know, just uh, give me a call. I think that's to do it. <laughs> I'm in the factory every single day. So yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be waiting. He'll be waiting. And is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you want to mention? Anything we didn't cover? I think we talked about so many, so many things for the last hour. Great, great things, actually. Um, I think um, we look a lot into uh, agri-food being a kind of a tech uh, thing at this point. I think we should be aware that we should focus on the actual product, the physical product. I'm, I'm extremely proud that we created some, you know, a product to hold in your hand. Um, that, that's just nice for me. Like a tangible product that you can... That you can feel and you can taste mm-hmm. and et cetera. Um, yeah. And when you say agri-food, do you mean like production with the robotics that are out there and the things we're seeing in terms of automation? Or what do you refer to when you say you've looked a lot at the agri-food tech? I'm just uh, a little nervous that maybe the, you know, the, the technology takes over the actual product and the quality behind it. I think that was what I'm trying to say. Does it make sense? Yeah. You always got to check yourself in this process. And I am... Um, I also exactly. tend to sit in the camp of thinking that technology is not the answer to everything. So we, we have to be mindful, especially when it comes to food, which is just so human. Like it's, it is who we are. It is nature. Exactly. Yeah. That was my point. My very last question for you then is, are there any pieces of advice you would pass on to other food entrepreneurs who may be listening to this, thinking about getting started? Mm. Anything that we didn't already highlight on your own journey that is good for them to know? I think my answer is, you know, I've worked a lot. I've worked a hundred hours a week for many years in my twenties. Um, but if it, if it feels like work, I think you're doing it wrong. And I think that was kind of my recipe to all this. Uh, it should be good fun to go to in my, uh, from my side of the table to go to the factory every single day and, and work hard. Uh, but it shouldn't be work. It should be, you know, a passion. Uh, I think that's where you create the, the best products and the best companies. So yes, that's my recipe. Do it from passion. Do what you love. Um, well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story and everything. It's been so fascinating. Thank you so much. All right. That's all for today. So what were your thoughts on this episode? I'd love to hear them. Feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram or email me at nordicfoodtechpodcast at gmail.com. If you really liked it, consider becoming a patron and supporting the show for a few dollars every month. The link to do so is in the show notes or visit www.nordicfoodtech.io. Your contribution will make all the difference and enable me to tell more good stories about how we're creating a better future through food. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.